Harling. You see, people collect all kinds of things. It doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello, and welcome to Mothball Miscellaneous. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Melissa Watson. Today, we are starting off where we left you last time, finishing up with the Wisters in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. We're speaking about a couple of interesting things we learned after the fact about the manufacturing of glass in New Jersey, specifically with the Wisters. We also found an interesting fact about, um, if you remember, we asked, what was a cord of wood? Oh, yeah. Well, I just Googled it, and according to Google... A quart of wood is equal to 958 liquid gallons of water. Which is good to know. I mean, it makes interesting, (laughs) makes perfect sense That was literally, you Google it, and that was the first thing that came up. So thanks, Google. Anyway, it's uh, a a block of wood that's eight foot by four foot by four foot. That's what a quart of wood is. That's a lot of wood. That is a lot of wood. My brain was like thinking of like plywood. Like, how did they measure it at that time? (laughs) I get it now. <laughs> the same with, have you seen that thing kicking around where it's like uh, they're referencing size, but they're just using a giraffe? Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like this is the size of two giraffes. It's like, who knows exactly I, this? Yeah. what space a giraffe takes up. I'm, I don't know if I've ever seen a real giraffe. I can't wait to use that 957 gallons when yeah. somebody goes, you know what a quarter of wood is? Yeah, 957 957 gallons. gallons. Yeah. We did find something interesting about, so the Worcester Glass House mm-hmm. was sold after the Revolutionary War. Okay. And we'll get into a little bit about this. This is going to be a, a tidying up of the Worcesters into where we're at now. Mm-hmm. So where we left off last time, we were mostly spending our time talking about where Casper Worcester came from and where he started in this uh, glass factory. Mm-hmm. And the initial thing that I read was from a book. And this article is from wheatandarts.org. And it really covers the rest of the nitty-gritty details about this family. Um, And there was not a lot of information at the time that was readily available about his glass house. Right. And so we found the um, advertisement that Richard Wister, who was a son, put up when they were selling the glass house and all of the property. Uh-huh. So there's no contemporary illustrations Illustrations of the glass works are known, but this is f- directly from the advertisement and a letter provided the details about the glass making facilities. This is what it said. The glass manufactory in Salem County, West Jersey is for sale with 1500 acres of land adjoining. It contains two furnaces with all the necessary ovens for cooling the glass, drying the wood, and the contiguous to the manufactory are two flatting ovens in separate houses. Now, I don't know exactly what that is. (laughs) There is a storehouse, a pothouse, a house fitted with tables for the cutting of glass, a stamping mill, a rolling mill, for the preparing of clay for making of pots, And at sustainable distance are 10 dwelling houses for the workmen. Now, there's an interesting fact about the workmen we'll bring up in just a moment. Okay. As likewise, a large mansion house containing six rooms on a floor. How many floors was this house? I don't know. Seven? I don't know. Containing six rooms on a floor with a bakehouse and wash house. Also, a convenient storehouse. Now, remember when we mentioned how he was bringing in goods from Germany Mm -hmm. and then selling them. 
This was one of the places he was doing so, as well as in Philadelphia. Okay. There are about 250 acres of cleared land within the fence. Wow. That is insane for that time period. Yeah. 100 whereof is mowable metal, meadow. Right. Which produces hay and pasturage sufficient for the large stock of cattle and horses employed by the manufactory. There is stabling sufficient for 60 head of cattle with a large barn granary, a wagon house, and then they go on to say the unimproved land is well wooded and 200 more acres of meadow could be made if wanted. Oh. Right. I wonder how much they sold it for. I don't know. That is crazy. I mean, so what did he say? 1,500 acres of land. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That is a lot. And, you know, he got into real estate after the button thing and was like buying stuff up. Right. And then it was interesting. I was reading through this article and they're trying to find um, information just about how it was. And one of the people they got information from was from Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) Of all people. (laughs) Uh, You got to cite your sources. Right, so Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin. So then he comes in and describes the size of the furnace, which we spoke about in the last one, and how there was no grate on the floor, all of those things. And he talks about, um, like, how hard they, how hard of a time they had to find clay and different things like that. Right. Yeah. All of the struggles. Benjamin Franklin's just filling in all the fucking details for the people of the time. Yeah, you didn't know he was a journalist about glass making. You didn't. You did not know. So we spoke a little bit about the workers, right? And we listed off some names of the workers in the last episode. This article states about how the workers got here to the Americas to work well in any industry. So we found some interesting things, uh, according to old Benny Franklin. And the beginning part of it is, I did not realize how many, I guess, people it would have taken to operate the glass house. Right. Uh, Yeah, so the operations of a glass house required the work of many hands besides the skilled glass blowers. According to Richard Wister, the company employed 28 people in addition to woodcutters in the mid-1750s. So 28 people for just making glass is what that means to me. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have woodcutters. And that's not including the people that are keeping the grounds. Right. Uh, these would have included stonemasons to repair or rebuild the. Oh, okay, to repair or rebuild the various furnaces, men men to stoke the oven fires, and others to pack and haul the finished glasswares. For some of these tasks, the Wisters engaged local laborers on a daily or weekly basis. But like many others in the middle colonies, they also relied heavily upon the labors of indentured servants. Mm-hmm. Dun dun dun. So. When doing so, when Europeans wanted to immigrate to the New World, but they lacked the means to pay for the transatlantic crossing, Mm -hmm. there was the option of traveling as indentured servants, right? In exchange for the cost of passage, a person sold their labor for a period of time, often four years. Yeah. During that time, uh, the master, I hate hate that, would provide lodging, food, and clothes. But we all know, if you've taken a history class, nine times out of ten. That was not happening at the the pace that it should have or the quality that it should have. The number of newspaper notices for runaways from the Wisters, as well as other employees, indicates that retaining servant labor was a chronic problem. Well, Good for them. Fucking yeah, get out of there. Absolutely. Get that bag, get to this country and leave to go find greener pastures. Agreed. You know, 
The Wisters don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, and this was exacerbated during the French and Indian War, when indentured servants became the special prey of army recruiting sergeants. So they were losing them as runaways, and then they started to lose them to become soldiers. Wow. Yeah. Wister's claims for relief and protection do not center on the lost investment of his servants turned soldiers, but rather on the threat of the very survival of the glassworks. He said he could not operate the business with hired hands, and if more of his servants were enlisted, he would be disabled from carrying on, quotes. Wister waved aside the consequences of a shutdown would have, would have had on his finances, but hoped to appeal to his lordship's compassion by noting that several of the company were Really poor people. Really poor people. You know, if you can't afford to pay your employees a living wage, you can't afford to be in business. There you go. There you go. I'm touching the tip of my nose because you're on the money. Well, it, and isn't that interesting? Isn't that just interesting? <laughs> All the way back in the 1700s. Well, I'm sure like, it's there's a- just poor people everywhere. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, you want me to hire poor people? God. <laughs> Jeez. Um, in the second appeal, Worcester added yet another reason for exemption in starting. He was planning to erect a potash works in Worcesterburg. Lies. Potashes were such an important commodity for British manufacturers of glass and soap that the government had encouraged another colonist in the endeavor with a 3,000-pound grant. If Worcester was forced to close the glassworks for want of hands, he would not be able to supply potash and loot on wood, in effect, be undermining government policy. Oh, ho, ho. Took him out at the governmental knees. Got him. Got him. But it's not known whether or not Wister ever realized his goal of commercial traded potashes. Okay. Just talking right. smack. All right, potash, Casper. Smack. Wister must have received some satisfaction from his petitions because the company record book proves that the production of glass continued unabated through the 1750s. Yeah, even though the value of glass between 1761 and 1762 season dropped by over 40%. But that was because of death of people (laughs) running businesses, (laughs) not because of the war. Just death in general. Just death, but not poor people. No, they they did not care when the poor people died. Yeah. But enough about the the basis of what they did, right? Let's talk a little bit more about what they made, where they started, and then we're going to end with old Benny Franklin. Okay, Benny. So they started, the primary purpose of Wisterberg Glassworks throughout the history was to create utilitarian objects, right? Yeah. So they were mostly focusing on window panes and bottles, all right? Mm-hmm. And we spoke about a lot of the window panes that they made in their crusade against certain number of window pane yeah. pane. Right. One of the numbers in 1752 was most of the 22,849 feet of window glass in stock at the Philadelphia store. Holy crap. Was in panes of eight by 10. Wow. But then demand increased for other sizes. Oh. And that's where Richard Wister got his old panties in a twist. Eight by 10. That is a huge window. It's gigantic. It's huge. And so then they started to go nine by 11. 8 by 10, 7 by 9, 6 by 8, and 7 by 5. Even a 7 by 5 is massive. It's gigantic. Gigantic. So a couple of the techniques they used. Um, Richard Wister mentions uh, flatting houses in his 1718 description of glassworks. So this method was created by the cylinder technique. And in this process, the gaffer blew a shaped a long hollow cylinder about a foot in diameter at up to four feet in length. Wow. Can you, the lungs. Yeah. 
You know, they give you that thing in the hospital, like yeah. when they just <laughs> handed that to the glass blowers. Um, this was then slit lengthwise and placed on an iron shovel in a special flatting oven. So we mentioned those uh-huh. in the other one. That's where it melts it to unfurl into uh-huh. a flat sheet, which is also where it, when you see like wavy glass. Yep. It's this type of method. Interesting. Um, once annealed, the sheet was cut into panes of the desired sizes. These could be quite uneven in thickness, but often had wavy marks in the result of the hot glass coming into contact with the metal shovel. Huh. A piece of greenish window glass that was originally in 1772 Salem Friends Meeting House was made by this method and that may represent the typical Worcester product. It was also greenish. That's how a lot of Worcester products were described because clear glass was coming from England. It was leaded. Yeah. So another method they talked about, I I have heard this bullseye reference before, but I'm not really sure what it is. Yeah, so it says there's no evidence that bullseye panes were ever made at Wisterberg, but they were produced using the crown method of making window glass. A gather was shaped into a flattened globe, and then the solid iron rod known as a pontill was attached to the flat side, and the blowpipe was cracked off. By spinning the reheated glass crown on the pontill, the hole left by the blowpipe was enlarged and the disc flattened out into a large circular sheet. When the pontill was removed, a scar or bullseye remained, which I find fascinating. So fascinating. I would never have thought to make glass that way. It's like one of those... um, The the crazy, dry, pink, spinny guys. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. So this is interesting. If you have any like really mid-century glass or blown glass in your mm-hmm. house, you can flip it over and you can see the pontille mark. Some manufacturers didn't grind them off yeah. and some did. But generally blown glass, when you're looking at it, I'm rolling my fingers like you can see what I'm doing. Yeah. The edge will be really thin and kind of uneven yep. because of the way it's blown, which is just interesting. My uncle worked in a glass factory. Oh, cool. Called Bullseye Glass. Cool. Yeah. Ding. Ding, ding, ding. But they imported most of that glass. They weren't doing that in the factory. Oh, okay. From what we see, they were doing the tube roll, mm-hmm. flatten, you know. And I'm sure that's what they called it. The omelet of glass. <laughs> the if omelet you will. glass. The omelet glass <laughs> method. <laughs> so the other thing with Wisterberg glass, they did not produce tablewares, hollowwares, right? Mm-hmm. It was not profitable at the time because you couldn't compete with. England right. and their glass, right? right? Even old Benny Franklin only mm-hmm. had English leaded glass on his tables. So they were mostly known for making window panes and bottles. Now, most of Wisterberg bottles are not marked. They didn't mark them because it was a commodity, right? It wasn't like Wedgwood or something. Right. So, but they were, ha- they were having to compete with thousands of English bottles that were being exported to the colonies. Um, the English one was renowned for their sturdiness, and they were blown from very dark, thick green glass. These characteristics were a direct result of high-temperature coal-fired furnaces used in English glass houses. The typical English bottle was made with a high kick or push-up in the bottom that would have applied a string rim on the lip. Many were personalized by the means of the applied blob or seal of glass onto which an impression of the name or initials. Okay. The bottle made for Richard Wister at his New Jersey glass house follows the English fashion and carries a seal with the initials RW. It's a straight bodied shape parallels that of English bottles, right? 
but the Wisterberg bottle varies marked from English examples. There's thin walls of clear, light green glass. There's only slight concavity to the bottom. The pontial marks are different. Um, and a lot of ways that this glass is identified, like I said in the other one, was through lab identification. Another one, though, that is more known for the alloy factor is a globular body. It is a wide mouth with a folded over rim because it was really hard to do to get the rims to look uniform and rolled over. Yeah. And it would have been suitable for foodstuffs or preserved fruit. A cover of parchment or some other material would have been placed over the top and tied below the rim, which is why there's a lip on the rim. It wasn't a bottle cap. It was parchment. The other was owned by another uh, glassworks, glasshouse. Perhaps the most interesting thing that we've come across was the electrical component with old Benny Franklin. Yeah. Okay. So at this time, we're discovering electricity. We're discovering how it works. There's doing experiments. And Ben Franklin is friend with the Wisters. So he starts to ask the glasshouse if they can make him tubes to conduct electricity. The only problem they run into is that most glass tubes were made with leaded glass or English glass or clear glass. Right. And they could not withstand as much electricity. So they changed a little bit of the composition of their glass specifically for the scientific portion and were able to make tubes that could be electrified that were a green color. Love it. And they could be safely electrified. Now, the interesting thing to me about this, right, is we know from collecting different colored glass that additives such as manganese, selenium, mang like all of these different things, uranium, yeah. are being added to glass for the color. They didn't have black lights. Yeah. So at this time in their factory, they're also adding manganese to yeah. glass. And I wonder if that green glass was a uranium glass. I don't know. We'll probably find the answer to that. Yeah. But... Um, besides electrolyzing these tubes, the Wisters also provided other glassware for colonial scientists. Yeah, which is crazy. Like the 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 tie. Electrical tubes and globes were still advertised by Wister in the 1760s and made at American glasshouses of the 19th century. They wow. continued. Cool. Now, that wraps up a lot of the Wister stuff, right? Now we're going to move on into more American manufacturing that jump off from this okay um but it's important to know that this specific era of glass and the glassware is known as south jersey type glass south jersey mm -hmm. so but like i said there's not a lot known a lot of that stuff was lost to time and uh -huh. people not caring and so a lot of that the information they have about wisterberg and the glass house has been excavated from the site interesting yeah so now we're going to move into some other American-made glass. And our final episode in the series of American glassmaking will leave us with some of our favorites we know today. Cool. So it gets a little foggy in the history of glass houses because we are quickly approaching the Revolutionary War. <clears throat> there is a second great name in early American glass, and that's Henry William Stiegel Steigel. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> he was first concerned with the manufacturing of bottle and window pane, right? That's what was happening in the colonies. Um, he had an iron forge in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and continued his new glass house in Mannheim, also in Lancaster County. But sometime after 1765, 
encouraged by the patriotic adoption of the non-important agreement, uh, non-importation agreement. I read it as important too. <laughs> I do. Whoops. He ventured into the table glass business. Now, table glasses, cups, bowls, things that you're going to give to a guest. Right. So he ventured into that, right? And um, compared his wares to English imports, which is uh-huh. ballsy. Yeah. Um, later, it was called the American Flint Glassworks, but it failed only 10 years later in 1774 after economic conditions caused by the approaching war and the colonial preference for imported tablewares. Um, there are few pieces that are attributed with confidence to these glass houses, but it is characterized by the use of clear and artificially colored glass decorations such as engraving, enameling, and pattern molding. Okay. There was two distinct styles of glass that they made um, and certain mold-blown patterns such as diamond daisy and daisy in hexagon are believed to have been originated at the Stiegel houses. No European prototypes have been identified. Interesting. Very. So now we're getting into post-revolutionary glassworks. So post-revolutionary glassworks, um, this was before the turn of the century, there were, of course, other glasshouses that were founded, but few survived the revolution. Um, they were largely devoted to the production of, like we said, bottles and glass making. But there was an exception with the New Bremen Glass Manufactory. Ooh. Most of the offhand, or shaped by hand, pieces that can be tentatively assigned to them are of the South Jersey tradition. Three of these enterprises are of particular importance. First, the New Bremen, which is in Maryland, founded by John Friedrich Amelung, and he was from Germany and company. And then um, they these pieces were both signed and dated, uh-huh. as well as being among the finest production in the United States before 1800. They're important because they're signed and dated. So this is like the first of American glass that is like actually can be attributed to a certain... Yeah, certain okay. maker, certain time, certain place okay. where... I'm sure there were people finding Worcester glass that were like, I don't know where this is from. Right. And and then being able to denote it as American uh-huh. versus imported, imported English made. So by 1785, his works were offered, his works offered green and white hollow wear for sale. And by 1795, the glass works themselves were offered for sale. So they didn't last very long either. No. Uh, one of the most famous pieces in the history of American glass is the Bremen po- Pokal, P-O-K-A-L, yeah. uh, the word for goblet, the German word for goblet, blown and engraved in 1788 and sent back to Amelung's financiers in Bremen, probably the only return they ever received on their investment. I wow. love that. I love that little jab from the, the writers of this. Yeah. <laughs> there they got it. The second factory in post-revolutionary time um, was known as Olive Glassworks. And it was in Gloucester County. I'm saying it like I'm British. I don't know how they say it in New Jersey. Was completed in 1781. So these are all happening like in succession Mm -hmm. of themselves. Yeah. And they were by none other but former employees of the Worcester Glassworks. You know. Because the Worcester Company sold in 1780. Somebody bought it and turned it into a glassworks. So which Mm -hmm. one of these is 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 in the same location, you know? Right. Um. So, in addition to the many of the South Jersey pieces attributed to this house, it's an interest because of the long history, right? Mm-hmm. And this eventually becomes a part of the Owens Bottle Company, which I'm sure comes into this later, but I, good for you, Owens Bottle Company. 
The third venture of this time was um, associated with the name Pitkin, erected in East Hartford, Connecticut, near the Connecticut River in 1783. It was intended to manufacture window glass, <laughs> but it was converted in 1788 to manufacture bottles and flasks. Now, what's important about that name Pitkin is it denotes a type of flask and not a specific glasswork. Oh, okay. So, um, the Pitkin glass, the factory thrived up until 1830 and is best known for the half post, i.e. dipped twice up to the neck, ripped, ribbed flasks in natural browns, ambers, and greens. Interesting. Pause. So this Pitkin boy, what does it look like to you? It's like a, it looks like a flattened circle with a neck on it, basically. And like it was uh, striated at one point and they twisted it. Yes. And then flattened it. Yep. Yeah, it's very interesting. And then they show some of the toppers that would have gone with it. Very cool. I would own one of those. Absolutely. I'm sure They're it's beautiful. expensive. Oh, yeah. Let's see. Let's see what that price is listed here. Um, oh, they. I, there's a lot. Pitkin must have gone on for a while because there's cut crystal and stuff. Oh. For them. I'm love they have there's so many interesting colors. They're all shades of green, but like there's apple green and then more toward olive and brown. Mm-hmm. Love it. Which one of the interesting things we read about um with the Worcester Company, and this is lots of glass companies. Um, when you're buying glass that's in a set that looks like it's all painted the same, it's all cut the same, it all looks the same. Uh-huh. Specifically if you buy uh glass that illuminates under black light mm-hmm. or UV light. You'll notice that some pieces glow differently or some don't glow at all, even though they look like they should glow. And that's just because is because they're from different batches of glass? Yeah. So all the broken glass and stuff at a factory is like remelted down and used uh-huh. is called cullet. Yep. Remelted and then continued to be used. So that's why some pieces of uranium glass from the same time period will glow a little differently because it's different compositions of that uranium that's being used inside it. So that is where we're going to leave you today on this journey into American glassmaking that has become infinitely more interesting than I suspected it I, would be. Uh, yeah, I agree. When you said, let's do American glassmaking, I was like, snore. Snore. But honestly, it's fascinating. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I've learned a ton. It's made me look at glass uh, a lot differently, and I've looked at an ass ton of glass over the last (laughs) month um next time we're going to pick up after the war of 1812 and moving into our favorite era of the beginning of glass which is the late like the 19th century moving into the victorian times here in america exciting as always i hope you're not one of the poor people (laughs) and i hope that you have eight by ten windows in your house i do too as always, I do hope you find some good shit, and maybe you'll find a Pitkin bottle. Hopefully. And Hopefully. maybe it's under a table. Don't forget to look. Don't ever. See you next time. Bye. Bye.